Well, if your Bibles, please take and turn with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 1. We have been in Luke's gospel, but this being a holiday weekend, decided to do something a, a little bit different. Was going to, uh, thought it, I'd be preaching on uh, the topic of work, since this is Labor Day weekend. But I realized there's a whole lot more in, in Genesis 1 to 3 that we can, can look at and, and talk about. So we're going to read from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to chapter 2, verse 3, and then we'll dig in. This is God's word. Moses writes, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Amen, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray again and ask him to help us as we study his word. Oh, Father, your word is truth. Would you sanctify us by your truth? Would you come now and give to us that rock solid foundation of your word that we might live our lives according to it, that we might order our thinking and our speaking and our acting according to your word. Father, come by your Holy Spirit and help us. Lord, we need your grace, your mercy. We need your transforming power. And we pray that you would come and do it even now through the preaching of your word. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, the eternal word, your son and our savior. Amen. Well, my sermon title this morning may sound familiar to some of you. In 1986, a Unitarian Universalist pastor named Robert Fulgham wrote a book of 50 short essays. And the title of that book was taken from the first essay, All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. In that essay, he suggests that what we all learned in kindergarten is the, the core of what we need to know to live as a civilized person in society. You know, things like share everything, don't hit people, put things back where you found them, uh, clean up your own mess, uh, don't take things that aren't yours, warm cookies and cold milk are good for you, right? Live a balanced life, learn some, play some, sing some, draw some, paint some, dance some, work every day, right? Take a nap every afternoon, right? These are the sort of things that he said are all we really need to know is what we learned in kindergarten. Now, those principles certainly give us some uh, common sense advice. They give us some uh, basic moral lessons along uh, the lines of the golden rule. Uh, but you should take Fulgham's phrase, all I really need to know with a very large grain of salt. Uh, because if all you know is man-centered moralisms without the solid foundation of a God-centered and gospel-centered worldview, then you don't ultimately know anything at all. You certainly don't know anything rightly. 
And so this morning, I want to give you a summary of that God-centered, gospel-based foundation that's found here at the very beginning of the Bible, in the very first book of the Bible, in the very first three chapters of the Bible. And as I said, this is a holiday weekend. We're going to do things a little bit differently. I'm doing something completely differently this morning. This is an eight-point sermon. I've never preached an eight-point sermon before. Maybe you'll say after this, please never do it again, all right? Uh, but I, you know, we finished on time in the first service. So just rest assured that, that this is not going to be eight long points. This is eight short points, right? And, and I put them for you there in the bulletin uh, at the bottom if you want to follow along uh, with me. I don't think I'll be able to say, you know, seventhly, the seventh point and hold my fingers up like I sometimes and once do. Uh, but even here, uh, that phrase in my sermon title, all I really need to know, even here, right? It, it's, it's really a bit tongue in cheek, isn't it? There's much more clearly that we need to know to live as God's children in God's world. But these eight basic foundational truths are fundamental as we seek to live in God's world. They are immensely practical right, for us to live in the light of. And so I want us to, to jump in. So buckle up. Here we go. Number one, God is the creator and we are his creatures. Genesis 1-1 that I read to the children, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right? The Bible opens by affirming that the world and everything in it had a beginning. But at the beginning, God was already there because God has no beginning. Right? He has always been. The creator is uncreated. The creator is not a creature. And thus we learn immediately, don't we, that the starting point for all true religion, God is transcendently distinct from his creation. He is different than his creation. He is the creator. We are the creatures. And this creator God, in the space of six ordinary literal calendar days with mornings and evenings, he created all things out of nothing by the word of his power and all very good. What this means for us, if, if God is the creator, right, it means that there is a God. It's not the world. It's not the things in the world. It's not some impersonal force emanating within and through the things in the world. And it's certainly not you, right? There is a God and he is not you. There is a God and he is not like you. God is infinite, eternal, unchangeable. He is independent. He is beyond our absolute and total comprehension. We, on the other hand, are finite. We are bound by space and time, right? We grow, we learn, we change, we are dependent, right? We become God is. God needs nothing from us. We need everything from him. From eternity, the one God has existed as three persons in Trinitarian fellowship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We get a, a little hint of that, don't we? Even in in verse 26. And what this means, since God has been not only one, but three from all eternity, it means that God does not create out of lack or out of loneliness, out of need. He creates out of fullness so that we, his creation, might know and share in his glory. As creatures, we need the revelation that God has provided, that we might make sense of life, that we might know how to live. And God has given us that revelation. In the creation, he's given it to us in our conscience. He's given it to us ultimately in his word, spoken and written. 
God has revealed himself as the king, the sovereign king who is in control of everything that he has made. He is the creator and we are his creatures. And therefore we owe him an absolute allegiance for all the good gifts that he has given to us. On the last day, each and every one of us will have to give an account as to how we lived. Did we live a God-centered life or did we live a man-centered life, a self-centered life? So that's the first foundational truth. God is the creator and we are his creatures. But, But secondly, related to it, God has created mankind in his image. You see it there in verse 26 of chapter one, on the sixth day after God had created all the other land animals, he created man in his own image, Moses writes. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now back in the the cultures of the ancient Near East in which Moses and Abraham uh, would have been living, uh, right, in those centuries, uh, kings in the, uh, the ancient cultures would have built statues of themselves, would have placed them in, in, in the distant places of their realm and, re- and reign in order to, to represent their sovereignty right, in that far off place. Well, in the same way, we as men and women are images of God. We have been made in his image, created to be his representatives here on earth to reflect his glory throughout all the earth, throughout all the, the, the realm that he is over. Right? God has created mankind like himself, originally in knowledge, true knowledge, right? with all knowledge that he needed, with righteousness, with holiness. And though we know from chapter three that we're about to think about, by Adam's fall, all mankind has lost that original moral uprightness. We also know that through Jesus Christ, the second Adam, we are being transformed back into that image, back into that image and knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, being renewed according to the image of Jesus Christ. But we also learn in the scriptures from Romans, excuse me, from James chapter three, from Genesis chapter nine, that, that the fall did not eradicate the image of God in man. No, it, it, it shattered it, it, it broke it, it tarnished it, And yet every single human being, even those who do not know the Lord, even those who do not love the God in whose image they are made, every single human being is still created in the image of God. Perhaps you have in your pocket an iPhone that has taken a a, a tumble, right? And your your screen is shattered. And maybe it's even shattered to the point that, you know, it doesn't work when you touch it. And there's certain things that you can no longer do with it. There's, there's, it's just broken. And yet maybe it still makes phone calls, right? It still takes pictures. There's still a functionality to it, even though it is shattered in its appearance and and broken in so many ways. Well, in a similar way, being made in the image of God, right, means that we are still unique among creation. In spite of the fall, in spite of the shatteredness of Adam's sin, we are still unique as men and women. Like our king, we are still called to exercise dominion over the rest of creation. Like God, we have been created to be creative. We have been made to be makers, right? Like God, we are spiritual. We are personal. We have minds and wills and affections. Like God, we are rational. We plan, we execute plans, we evaluate plans, we order things and name things. We do it in a manner that that fits this world that God has made. Like God, we are communicators. 
right? We use words. We are hardwired for relationship, being made in the image of a relational triune God. Now notice that here in the text, we, we see that both males and females are created in God's image. Notice also that gender is not some social construct. It is a divine construct. It is a divine creation. God recognizes only two genders, male and female. And he gives each one of us only one of those two genders from the womb. This is a foundational truth to know and to believe and to live in the light of. The image of God in each one of us means that that whether we are male or female, or even if we are spiritually confused about our gender, there is an inborn dignity that every human has. No matter what someone else thinks about you or says about you, there is a dignity to being human because you've been made in the image of God. And that image of God also changes the way that we think about and speak about and relate to and live with other image bearers. Do you see how foundational this truth that mankind has been made in the image of God? But thirdly, we learn this truth from Genesis 1 to 3. God has created work. As I said, this was sort of the the way that I really originally had thought this sermon was going to go. And then I said, you know what, there's a lot more here. But this truth, as we think about Labor Day, as we think about our work and our callings, it is so important that we remember that God has created work. Contrary to the worldly notions that work is a curse to be avoided or that work is a God that will ultimately satisfy us. No, the Bible says that work is a gift, a gift of kindness, a gift of God. He is the one who's created work. It is his creation ordinance. It is his creation mandate. He has sewn it into the very fabric of our existence as humans. Our basic job description is there in chapter 1, verse 28. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the creation. Again, being a worker is a part of being made in the image of God. Chapter 2, verse 2 tells us that God is a worker. God is a doer. God is a maker. He creates and, and now he sustains his creation. He superintends providentially all that he has made. Now, yes, to be sure, after Adam's fall, work is now hard. Work is not easy. It's full of toil and thorns and thistles and sweat. But God still tells us, as we saw in Colossians 3, that whatever our hand finds to do, do it heartily. Do it with all our might. We are to use our thought and our skill and our energy, our time, to exercise a God-ordained control over all of Earth's resources, all of Earth's forces, to change, to rearrange, to reorganize, to improve, to reorder whatever God has made to be producers and not merely consumers. Every human endeavor, every human ability and skill and task and and job and field of study, whatever it is that you do or have done or will do, it's an opportunity, an occasion to take the creation and to harness it for the glory of God and for the good of other image bearers. Now, of course, no one can subdue every part of this world that God has made, but God has given you some portion of earth, some portion of this globe that you can subdue for his glory and for others' good. But related to that is our fourth point. God not only created work, he also created the Sabbath day. In chapter two, verses two to three, we read that after completing the work of six days, God rested on the seventh day. He ceased from the work of creation. Now, he didn't do this because he was exhausted, 
worn out. Of course not. He didn't do it because he, he needed to take a break. No, he did it because the creation was complete and because he was condescending to give us an example, a pattern that he would command us to follow. Just like work, the Sabbath is a creation ordinance, a creation mandate. I didn't use this illustration with the first service, but a creation ordinance, a creation mandate is something that if you, if you rub your hand against it, right, you're rubbing your hand against the grain of the way the world has been created by God. If you rub your hand against the, the grain of the wood, you're going to experience pain. In the same way, if you rub your hand against the way that God has created the world, against the grain of his creation, right, you will experience pain. That is the way he has built his world. And, and likewise, as we come to the Sabbath, the Sabbath is a creation ordinance. It's formatted, hardwired into us as image bearers. Even if we foolishly reject it, God blessed the Sabbath day. Genesis tells us. He set it apart. He distinguished it for his creatures as a different day, a different sort of day, a day to, to cease from the ordinary activities of the six days so that we might be free to give all of our attention to the Lord, to be refreshed, refreshed and reset physically and spiritually. This is why when we come to the Ten Commandments, the fourth commandment begins with what word? Remember. Right? You remember something that has already been Moses says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy because it's already in existence. It didn't just all of a sudden start there in Exodus chapter 20, right? And Moses there in the fourth commandment grounds the Sabbath command in this very text. For in six days, God created the heavens and the earth and rested on the seventh day. The Sabbath has been a moral principle from the very beginning. Let me say it this way, just like gender is not a social construct, the seven-day week is not a social construct. It's not something that humans have admitted. You know what would be a good thing? Seven days in a week. No, no. That is God's creation. God has ordained the seven-day week. The Sabbath is not merely a ceremonial law that passes away when Jesus comes. Not to be sure, there were ceremonial elements that did pass away. But, but it is a moral law. Unfortunately, so many Christians today do uh, treat the Sabbath as merely ceremonial. I believe they would say, in all nine of the Ten Commandments. Right? But Genesis teaches us that God didn't create us just to work, but to cease from our earthly callings, our earthly delights, in order to focus upon our heavenly callings, our heavenly delights, to, to free us from distraction so that we might contemplate and meditate upon his glory one day in seven. Jesus, as the Lord of the Sabbath, reaffirms Right? The, the Sabbath was what? Created for man, for the good of man, for the good of image bearers, that they might be physically and, and spiritually refreshed. He changes the Sabbath from the seventh day to the first day of the week because he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death on that first day. No longer do we work six and then rest. Rather, we rest on the first day of the week and out of that rest, out of the grace of God, we work. We work in light of what he's done for us. God created the Sabbath so that we might work six and rest one, or better, rest one and work six. All right, so we're at halftime, right? Four points. How are you doing? We're a little behind. But ask yourself, do you believe that you are not God? That you are the creature, not the creator? You are not the sovereign one. You are not in control of your life. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you are made in the image of God with all the dignity, all the joy that comes 
and that everyone around you in this room and in the community also is made in the image of God and that that changes how you think about, how you speak to, how you relate to them. Do you believe that work is God's creation? And if you do, how do you work? Do you believe that the Sabbath is God's creation? How do you live with regard to the Lord's day, the Christian Sabbath day? Do you believe in all nine of the 10 commandments? Or do you believe that there really are 10 commandments that God has given? Ask yourself these questions, meditate upon them. Let's keep going. Number five, God created not just work, not just the Sabbath, not just us, he created marriage. In chapter two, verse four, Moses is moving into a new section of his book, giving more detail concerning the creation of the first man and woman. And in verse 18, we learn that marriage as well is not a man-made social construct that we can define or redefine according to our autonomous desires, but rather is an institution created by God. It is a creation ordinance ordained by God to be between one man and one woman. It is God's good gift. It is his idea. It is a solution to the first not good that we find in these chapters. And what is that not good? It is man's aloneness, right? It's not good that man should be alone. But, but think about it. Have you ever had this thought? But he wasn't alone. Adam wasn't alone. God was with him. And yet God is the one who says it is not good for man to be alone. Yes, God was with him, but Adam had no one who was like him with him. So God declares that he will make him a helper corresponding to him, fit for him. Someone who would enable him to do the things that God had called him to do, who would help him to do what God had called him to do. Now, to be sure, not everyone will marry. And Jesus says that some have a gift of singleness. In a fallen world, we know that some will experience the pain of divorce. Many will experience the pain of losing a spouse to death. But marriage, again, is God's idea. It is God's creation. And therefore he is the one who tells us how to think about it, how to live in it, how to approach it. Again, we've seen that even this morning from Colossians chapter three. Here in these chapters, chapter two, we learn several things about marriage, don't we? We learn that the purpose of marriage is companionship unto dominion. Through marriage, God has given a friend with whom he is able to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth with even more image bearers of God, to subdue the earth, to rule over the creatures. We learned the essence of marriage is deep oneness. Right? From the story of Eve's creation out of a rib of, of Adam, Moses tells us that a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto, be joined, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Right? All the relationships, particularly parent-child, whether you think about your parents or your children, up or down, backward or forward, all other relationships are secondary compared to the relationship between husband and wife. A married couple are not merely roommates, right? They are one flesh. They are to be one, to live as one in every area of life. And in this chapter, we also see that this oneness is given to us and, and, and God has also ordained not only the oneness, but a structure within marriage, right? The husband is the authority, the head of his wife. And it's called to exercise that authority and love, loving his wife as he loves his own body since he is one flesh with her. You see the love pour out of, of Adam, even in the poetry that he writes upon Eve's creation. Marriage, God tells us, is to be permanent unto death. God is the one who has joined every married couple together 
And what God has joined together, as Jesus says, let no man separate. And so what this implies for us is that pornography and fornication and adultery and homosexuality and polygamy and polyamory and bestiality, all of these strike at the very heart of God's creation ordinance. That is marriage. So here's what God has made. Here's what God has created. But now we move into a little bit different aspect of these first three chapters. We've seen these creation ordinances, but now we begin to move into what is more specifically gospel related, right? Here's the God-centered nature of, of life. And here's the gospel. And of course, that's God-centered as well, but let's think a little more what this Bible in these first three chapters teaches us about the gospel. And we begin by observing that here in this text, we read that God made a covenant with Adam, a covenant of works with Adam. Chapter two, verse 16, we didn't read it this morning, but you see that it says that before Eve was created, God had not only given Adam the commands to work in the garden, but had also given him a specific command regarding one tree in the garden, right? He was free to eat from all the trees in the garden, including the tree of life that he might live forever, but he was not free to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This was off limits. If he ate from this tree in that very day, he would surely die. This arrangement between God and Adam is what we call a covenant. In simplest terms, as the children's catechism says that we went through with some of the children this morning, in simplest terms, a covenant is an agreement between two or more persons. Think about it this way. Imagine your child, if you have children, coming up to you one day and saying, all right, I've done my chores. Where's my money? You're like, what? Like, I clothe you? I feed you? I have a roof over your head? Like, I raise you? Like, you're just part of this family and you're just going to do what needs to be done to help the house run, right? This is, you know, your small contribution to household management is, is not somehow like inherently deserving of compensation. Now, certainly I can agree to give you an allowance as for, for the, the little help that you give, right? Well, the, the Westminster Confession of Faith authors put it like this. The distance between God and the creature is so great, such a great distinction between God, the creator, and the creatures, that although reasonable, rational creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, except by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he has been pleased to express by way of covenant. God has entered into an agreement, right? And here in the garden... He entered into a covenant, an agreement of works. Now that language of covenant is not used here in Genesis 2, but we know from a passage like Hosea 6 that speaks of, of Israel transgressing the covenant just like Adam, that what we have is here is a covenant. All the parts of a covenant are here. We have the parties, God and Adam. We have the precepts, obey God's law perfectly, summarized in this specific command to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We see the penalty, death, threatened, natural, spiritual, eternal, right? And we see the promise of life implied. Adam, if you do what I'm telling you to do, if you obey perfectly, you will live. If you disobey, you will die. And so we call this covenant the covenant of works, the covenant of works or the covenant of life. Life was promised upon condition of perfect obedience. Adam stands in this covenant, not merely for himself, mind you, not as one man dealing with God, but as a covenant head, as a representative, Adam stands not just as an individual, but for everyone who would be born from him, which is everyone who has ever lived on this earth. And the question that 
the Bible sets before us is will Adam stand or will he fall? Which brings us to the seventh point. In Adam's fall, sinned we all. Genesis 3 tells the dreadful tale of Satan's temptation and deception of Eve, Adam's rebellion against God's command, and the dire consequences that followed. Our first parents, being left to the freedom of their own will, fell from the state of righteousness and innocence by using their freedom to disbelieve the promises and the goodness of God and to disobey the holy law of God. Immediately, they died spiritually. The seeds of physical death are sown within their bodies. From dust they came, to dust they will return. In Genesis 3, we see that they were alienated from God, alienated from one another, alienated from themselves, alienated from the creation. And all those alienations, all those dysfunctions, all of that, uh, that misery related to sin is ours. We experience it because Adam did not act just for himself. Right? He acted for his own, for all of his own offspring. And Adam, all of us have broken the covenant of works. We have disobeyed God. We have not obeyed him perfectly. And therefore we deserve to die. How did Paul put it in Romans 5? Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all had sinned in Adam. Death entered into the world. There had been no death before the fall. You see it there in chapter 1, verse 30. There had not even been animal death. The animals ate plants. But now death becomes the norm. In chapter 4, what happens? Cain kills Abel. In chapter 5, what do we have? A genealogy of births and deaths. There would be no genealogies of deaths before the fall. In chapter 6 through 8, what do we have? The flood narrative. When God judges mankind for its rebellion, all of us are born into this world dead in our sins and trespasses. Our wills are no longer free, but they are enslaved to sin. All of us are born as children of Satan, children deserving God's wrath under his curse. As Genesis 6 will say it, by nature, every intent of the thoughts of our hearts is only evil continually. It's pretty discouraging, isn't it? pretty depressing way to start the Bible. All right, here we are. God's image bearers refuse to acknowledge that they are not the creator. They're just creatures. Now work is broken. Marriage is a mess. We don't keep the Sabbath day holy. Death is our destiny. What is the hope? Well, there is hope, isn't there? There is hope here in this chapter, chapter three, Genesis one to three. The hope is found in chapter three, verse 15 in particular. Look at chapter three, verse 15. Some of you know this verse. God promises to graciously put hostility between Satan and Eve where there had once been friendship and love and affection and, and, and allegiance. God promises that there would be a seed who would ultimately not be Satan's offspring. Most importantly, God promises that there would come a seed of the woman, an offspring of the woman who would, who would bruise, who would crush the head of the serpent, Satan. And in so doing, he would have his heel bruised or crushed. And what does the rest of the Bible show us? But that this seed of the woman is Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. Jesus, the Son and the true image of God through whom all things were made. Jesus, the Son of God who became a man without ceasing to be God. Who becomes a man in order that he might keep the covenant of works perfectly 
in our place so that he might undo what Adam did. He obeyed his father in every way. He suffered the curse, the penalty of sin through his death on the cross. And through that death, he has reconciled us to God. He has conquered Satan and sin and death. And now by his spirit, for all who put their trust in him, he is transforming us by his truth and by his grace. He is renewing us into his image in every way. He is enabling us to do our work as unto him, our true master. He's enabling us to rejoice in the rest that he has accomplished for us as we keep the Sabbath day holy now at the beginning of the week, looking forward to that eternal Sabbath that is to come. We've sung about this morning from Pisgah's mountain, we view our promised land. Moses standing on Mount Pisgah, not allowed to enter into the promised land, but seeing it down below. For us, every Lord's day, we gather anticipating right, the new heavens and the new earth that eternal rest to come. Jesus enabling us even now to see that our marriages point to his marriage with the church whom he loved and gave his life for, laid down his life for. From the very beginning, Genesis 1 to 3 is intent to tell us that Jesus is the hero of the story. Jesus is the main character, the one who will come and rescue his bride from the clutches of the enemy that enemy who only comes to steal, to kill, to destroy. Jesus has come that we might have life, true life, and life abundant and eternal. Do you see how the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only thing that enables us to build our lives properly upon the foundation that is laid forth for us here in Genesis 1 to 3? Some of you have had to deal with foundation issues in your house. You live in Mississippi and you, the, the Yazoo clay, it, it settles, it heaves. You've, you've experienced the pain and the frustration of having to hire someone to install these pilings at different places around your house. It's possible as we think of this foundation that, that your foundation has shifted, right? Maybe your foundation was never properly laid in the first place. Maybe, maybe you have no foundation. You've never heard anything that we've talked about this morning, perhaps, or you've heard it, you've forgotten it. Maybe you've heard part of it, not other parts. My hope and my prayer this morning is that the things that we've seen from these first three chapters of Genesis, sort of as, as much as it was, right? I'll, I'll you know, listen to this sermon again. I'll give you the manuscript if you need to, to, to be repeated, reminded. You know, what was that? What did he say? But, but my prayer is that these things that we've seen from God's word would be those pilings, Right, that would jack our foundation back up to where it needs to be. That would, would give to us right, something that would, would fix the settling in our hearts. It would bring us back to Christ, to God. I've never had to deal with foundation work in my own home, but I've seen how disruptive it is. And, and let's be honest, to, to conform your life to the principles and the practices that we've laid forth here, that are laid forth here in Genesis 3, that can be pretty disruptive. To conform your convictions to God's word in a world that thinks everything we've just talked about is complete and utter rubbish, foolishness, untruth. And yet, as the people of God, it's vital that we allow the Holy Spirit to transform us by this truth and by this amazing grace. So brothers and sisters, we need to pray that God would help us to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, every word captive, every action captive, every way of thinking about mankind as the image of God, work, Sabbath, marriage, 
God's covenantal dealings with men, the fall, the sinfulness of man, and the grace of the gospel. God, our creator, has made us, and by the grace of Jesus, promises to save us if we trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. May God make it so. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, we love you, and we thank you that you have laid forth for us a foundation that cannot be shaken. Oh, Lord, help us not to rub our hand against the grain of your world. Help us, oh, Lord, to follow you, to walk with you, to think your thoughts after you, to follow your pattern and your example as a worker and a rester. Lord, help us, we pray, to believe the gospel. May the grace of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us, may it transform everything according to your word here, even in Genesis 1 to 3. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to to take a, a step back and to take this 50,000 foot flyover, to see the big picture, Lord, of what you are doing and have done and what this world is that you have made. Lord, help us, we pray, to submit ourselves to your holy word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.